Hello and welcome to episode 4 Rematch When we left Moizuddin in the last episode he had returned to Ghazni after being defeated at Tarai by Prithviraja in 1191 CE Determined to have another shot at conquering India he set about raising another army In the meantime the Chahamanas had somewhat belatedly pursued the Ghurids to the gates of Tabrinda. Lacking siege weapons, they settled down to starve the garrison into submission. Although they eventually succeeded, it would prove to be just one more reason for their ultimate defeat. In the months following Muizuddin's return, his port in Ghazni was buzzing with activity. He dismissed his trusted Ghurid commanders who had ordered the retreat and swallowing his mistrust replaced them with the old central asian favorites the gulams the highest ranking among these slave officers was qutubuddin aibak who was appointed as his deputy and second in command he levied more troops but this time he paid equal attention to both the ghurid heavy cavalry as well as his turkic and afghan light units to equip and arm them he tapped into his native provinces famous arms industry and paid his men liberally in addition to promising them rich plunder when they had won he also had the army drilled and trained and supplies gathered in preparation for the campaign finally just weeks before embarking in 1192 ce he reinstated his old commanders although they were now subordinate to aibak and his gulams for the better part of a year while the gurids were preparing for another invasion the bulk of the chahamana forces were camping outside the walls of tabrinda waiting for its defenders to surrender for them the very concept of a siege would have been beneath contempt indian martial traditions laid a lot of emphasis on individual acts of heroism on the battlefield victory meant nothing if it had not been achieved due to the bravery of one's clan and chieftain and defeat meant very little so long as no one could accuse them of cowardice and here were these turushkas hiding behind fort walls instead of being good sports and either accepting defeat or sallying out for an open battle it isn't hard to imagine the scandalized indignation of the chahamanas as they waited for the defenders to starve when they finally surrendered Most of the gurids were let off lightly with maybe a lesson on battlefield etiquette the chahamanas then got back to the task of making war on their gadawala neighbors it doesn't seem to have occurred to any of them that the turushkas were not playing by their rules and that the only tradition they cared about was the one where victory was all that mattered The campaign of 1192 CE started off in much the same manner as in the previous year. The garrison of Tabrinda, who had until very recently been among its besiegers, found themselves now besieged by the Gurids. With the town already low on supplies from the first siege, they could only manage to send off a messenger to their king before they were forced to surrender. The events of the previous years 
then seemed to repeat themselves. The Ghurids marched eastwards and Prithirajra marched his own army north to meet them. The two met at Tarai and set up camp. But from this point onwards, things played out very, very differently. Of major concern for Moezuddin was the pachyderms the Chahamanas brought with them. He had not found a way to deal with them during the course of a battle and so he decided that they were not going to turn up on the day of the battle. That night, he ordered a hand-picked group of some of his best men to ride out under the cover of night and conceal themselves in a wood close to the Chahamana camp. The Chahamanas, believing that the battle would begin at dawn as was their tradition, and perhaps a little overconfident after their first victory, had made no efforts to fortify their position. In the wee hours of the morning, certain that they were asleep, the Gurit party struck. By the time their bewildered enemies could even figure out what was happening, they had broken into the centre of the camp, where the elephants were. Then they set about disabling or killing as many of them as they could. By the time the Chahamanas threw them back out, the damage was irreparable. There weren't nearly enough elephants left to make an impression on the battle that followed. The next morning, the two armies drew up. Sources claim that there were around 200,000 Chahamanas to 120,000 Ghurids, although the real numbers were probably just half that. The Chahamanas deployed in their usual two-line, two-wing formation with their king and his guard at their rear. The elephants were, of course, conspicuously absent. On the other side, Moizuddin arranged his men in a very different order. He divided his forces into five units, with two comprising of horse archers and two of Afghan cavalry. The final unit consisted of 12,000 of his elite cavalry. Of these, the four units of light cavalry were placed in front, with the horse archers forming the flanks. In the second line were the heavy cavalry, while Moizuddin was stationed to their rear with reinforcements. Crucially, he had learned from his previous defeat and had formed his men up a good distance from the Chahamana lines. The battle began with the horse archers again attacking the Chahamana front line. This time though, they had strict instructions to not give the enemy an opportunity to engage. They were to charge in waves, shoot and retreat out of arrow range. If the Chahamanas made any attempt to attack, they were to quickly withdraw and hopefully their over-enthusiastic enemies would charge straight into their trap. That, of course, the Chahamanas refused to do. For whatever reason, Prithiraja ordered his men to stay put and not attack. And for the whole day, they stood in the hot sun and endured the hail of arrows that were falling on them. While it ruined Moizuddin's plan for the day, it eventually backfired on Prithiraja. His men, accustomed to heroic charges and one-on-one -on -one combat, could simply not tolerate this inaction. When night fell, several of his commanders left in a huff along with their men. The rest spent a sleepless night, lest they be attacked again. The next morning, the two armies formed up again. Moizuddin would probably have been more than happy to repeat the previous day's tactic and wait till the Chahamanas either deserted their leader or took the bait and attacked. 
but he had problems of his own. His archers were running out of arrows. So he tried a different strategy. He ordered his Afghans to advance under covering fire from his archers and attack the flanks of the Chahamana line. When the Afghans charged, they were initially met with stiff resistance. But demoralized, sleep-deprived and exhausted, the Chahamanas were no match for the disciplined Afghans and soon they were being pushed back. To stabilize his line, Prithviraja peeled off some of his men from the center to reinforce the flanks. Although the Ghurid advance was halted, his own center was now dangerously thin and that was exactly what Moizuddin had hoped for. With the Chahamana line firmly pinned down on the flanks, he ordered his heavy cavalry to charge. Prithviraja's center broke and the Ghurid circled around to his rear. Now surrounded, the Chahamanas either fled or were cut down, the king was taken captive, and the fate of India for the remainder of its history was sealed. With his victory at Tarai, Moizuddin could now seize whatever part of the Ganga Valley he could lay his hands on. From 1192 to 1203 CE, he would alternate between leading campaigns against other Hindu kingdoms and rushing back to Ghazni to aid his brother in the west. While he was away, his deputy Kutubuddin oversaw his Indian possessions and led successful campaigns against the Chandelas, Gadawalas and other rulers in eastern Rajasthan. He even avenged his master's defeat at the hands of the Chalukyas at Mount Abu some 20 years previously. His modus operandi was simple. Cities and rulers that submitted without resistance were left untouched and had to only pay an annual tribute. Those that resisted were sacked, plundered and their temples burnt down. This worked remarkably well and cities fell like dominoes throughout North India. One subunit of the Ghurid army, a tribe of Afghans known as the Khiljis, spoiler alert, yes, these are the same Khiljis who will take center stage a few episodes down the line, made a daring bid for Bengal. Bengal, with its fertile fields and rich port cities, was tempting enough for rulers to try and rule it. And I say try and rule it, because it was also a marshland crisscrossed by water channels, densely forested, fiercely independent and disease-infested. When the British established their outposts in Bengal, as many as half the newcomers would die of disease. Before the Turks came to India, Bengal had already started developing its own unique cultural identity and the centuries of Turkish rule that followed would only serve to accelerate the process. For the next three centuries, it would defy Sultan after Sultan and would be brought to heel only during the reign of the Mughal Emperor Akbar. As for the Khaljis, they managed to seize the northwestern part of Bengal from the Senas and establish themselves at Lucknowti. Although their leader, Muhammad Bhaktiar Khilji, acknowledged Aibak's authority, he pretty much did what he pleased, which included marching his army into Assam, getting surrounded and killed while trying to break out. And his attitudes towards Aibak would set a precedent for his successors when it came to dealing with the sultans. In 1203 CE, Muizuddin was forced to return west 
following the death of his brother. Defeated by the Khwarezmians, he would die three years later trying to quell a revolt in Punjab. Having no heir, he would leave the now rapidly shrinking Ghurid Empire to his slaves to carve up. Aibak seized the Indian territories, while another slave, Nazaruddin Kobacha, seized Multan and established himself as the Sultan of Sindh. In Ghazni, Tajuddin Yaldos took the throne and squared off against his two rival sultans in India. India's link to Ghazni, however, was severed when the Khwarezmians defeated and killed Yaldos and annexed all the territories to the west of the Indus. Although no one knew it at that time, this severing would save India from a catastrophe that would befall the Islamic world just a few years later. Aibak wouldn't live to see that though. Just four years after becoming Sultan, he fell off his horse while playing polo in Lahore, where he had been preparing for a war against the Khwarezmians. His death would put a halt to war efforts against the Khwarezmians, and this would again prove fortunate for his successors in the long run. For the moment though, his death would plunge the still far from firmly established Sultanate into the first of its many succession crises. Before we go though, I'd like us to take a moment to look at an event that has largely been unappreciated for its significance. When Moizuddin won the Battle of Tarai, he needed to find a base for himself in India from where further expansion could be carried out. The Chahamana capital of Ajmer had been returned to Prithiraja under the conditions of vassalage. Moreover, he needed a place that was closer to Ghazni but at the same time was still within easy reach of the Ganga Valley and Rajasthan where his forces were operating. He found just such a spot ruled by the Tomra chieftains on the banks of the Yamuna at the northern edge of the Aravallis. Straddling the Indo-Gangetic divide, it lay at the intersection of ancient trade routes that ran both from east to west and northwards from the Deccan. This made it easy to reach from pretty much any part of India. With the Thar Desert to its south and the Himalayas to its north, it was an easily defensible position. The historians of the age make no big deal of his occupation of what was then an insignificant, dusty little town. In centuries to come though, this little town would grow, be sacked, burnt and rebuilt multiple times till it was so large, it would include within its boundaries seven walled cities. Largely unrecognized and ignored, this event in 1192 CE was one of those defining moments in history. Then suddenly from obscurity, Delhi would become the political heart of the country for the next 900 years. Join me in the next episode as Aibak is succeeded by one of his own slaves. The Khwarezm Shah makes a tragic mistake and his son arrives in India, hotly pursued by the riders of Chinggis Khan. Thank you.